wandering She's been wandering We were going down to the riverside Welcome to Cheese Underground Radio. I'm Jeannie Carpenter. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we talk with master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh, a fourth-generation cheesemaker who, like his father and grandfather, is making cheddar. But Chris is doing it differently. He's adding an adjunct starter culture to bring out different flavors and crystals in his cheddar. We'll talk with Dr. Mark Johnson at the Center for Dairy Research about the science of cultures and how they give cheese its flavor. Stay with us. My sweet Monica, to the river's edge of the Pacatonica, my guitar on my back, and my harmonica, we're all going down to the Pacatonica. Love cheese more. This episode of Cheese Underground Radio is sponsored by Fromagination. Madison's premier cheese shop, located in the heart of America's Dairyland, right on the Capitol Square. Fromagination's team of expert cheesemongers help you select the perfect cheeses and companions for every occasion. Shop online at fromagination.com, or better yet, visit Fromagination and taste the cheeses that make Wisconsin famous. Fromagination, love, cheese, more. Cheddar cheese, Wisconsin's claim to fame. Nearly half of all cheese plants in America's Dairyland produce cheddar. Whether it's in huge 640-pound commodity blocks destined to be sold in big-box grocery stores, or in smaller, but still heavy, 40-pound blocks meant to be aged and sold in specialty shops. Some cheesemakers even craft cheddar in 22-pound waxed daisy wheels or in smaller 18-pound wheels wrapped in linen and then covered in lard and aged in a cellar for a year or more. So much cheddar, so many choices. Wisconsin crafts more than 600 million pounds of cheddar every year in every shape and size. And perhaps nobody has a deeper connection to cheddar than the Raleigh family. Their historic cheese plant sits on the corner of Highways 11 and 23, halfway between Darlington and Schulzburg. In 2006, the fourth generation of the Raleigh's, that would be Chris, brought the family cheese plant back to life. He focuses now not on commodity cheddar, but instead on small batch artisan cheese. And his latest creation is something he is calling candied cheddar. It's a 20-pound wheel of deep red cheddar, chock full of crystals with a sweet, lovely finish. We stopped at Raleigh Cheese last week to get a glimpse at this new creation and talk cheddar with master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. We tracked down Chris in his office, and I asked him to give us a little background about how Raleigh Cheese first started making cheddar. Sure. So my great-grandfather come over from Switzerland in the early 1900s and uh, kind of the Cliff Notes version is he ended up becoming a cheesemaker here at our uh, what used to be called Hicks's Corners Co-op uh, which was a country corner uh, cheese factory that the local farmers had built to uh, market their milk. And after becoming a cheesemaker here um, and making all kinds of different types of cheese for the co-op, 
Uh, my grandfather took over for him and kind of grew the business into a Wisconsin state brand cheddar producing factory. What does that mean, um, a Wisconsin state so brand? The Wisconsin state brand was uh, was a uh, grade A cheddar that that was uh, sold on the open market as uh, as a commodity cheddar. Uh, but being that it was Wisconsin state brand, it had to live up to certain standards. Um, quality, moisture, fat, salt, those sort of things, the analytical tests that they did in those days. Um, there was all kinds of cheddar on the market. Wisconsin state brand cheddar was probably a step above okay. that, but a lot of different people were making Wisconsin state brand cheddar to sell on the market. Okay. So grandpa uh, kind of grew the business uh, into a large scale commodity cheese factory through the 50s, early 60s. Uh, my my father took over in 68, I believe, and uh, continued to make Wisconsin State brand cheddar up until the mid-80s when he started making uh, cheddar cheese curds for Harker brand, uh, Harker Meats out of Lamar's, Iowa. And they were using them for food service throughout the country. And my dad at one time was making the majority of the cheddar curds that went into the food service market throughout the United States. Wow. So we were making, on any given week, 35, 40,000 pounds of cheddar cheese curds for Harker brand out of Lamar's. And that pretty much lasted up until the early 90s when, uh, to be honest with you, our equipment was old, uh, worn out, and the margins were very low in cheddar because the market was flooded. Interest rates were double digits, 15, 17% interest. And uh, my family had to make the decision with me coming out of college as to whether or not we were gonna stay in the cheese making business. And the decision was made to close the doors rather than borrow money to upgrade the plant, get bigger, and still compete on a low margin with double digit uh, interest rates. The the writing I was on the wall that I would have failed. So long story short, um, that's sort of our family history as far as making cheddar. I grew up in the cheese factory with dad and grandpa making uh, state brand cheddar, uh, cheddar cheese curds. So the state brand cheddar was at 40 pound blocks? 40 and 60s. Okay. Yep. 60s in the, in the earlier days. Then it kind of transitioned, the, the market transitioned in the 40s. They're easier to cut, easier for people to handle, easier to break down, um, just all around easier to handle. Okay. So that's sort of sort of what I grew up doing was was watching my family make, you know, big, big cheddar. So you knew that you always wanted to make cheese? I did. Maybe not always. I maybe didn't always know that, but really... Um, as a middle-aged man now looking back on it, uh, you know, you go through that period in your 20s where you kind of sow your oats and you want to do other things and you, you think you can do everything better than everybody else that's doing it, but it really isn't that way. And, and I, I, I knew very early on that, that what I wanted to do was make cheese. And that was my comfort zone. That's what I always kind of was able to fall back on was that, I knew how to make cheese, and I knew how to make cheese pretty good. So, we uh, we convinced Dad and the uncles that uh, it'd be a good idea to uh, 
reinvest in the cheese industry. And it also happened to be at a time when artisan cheese was really starting to pick up steam. And what year was that? And that was about 2005, 2006. And uh, that's when we renovated the old cheese plant into uh, a very much smaller, modern uh, artisan cheese plant. Okay. So so in the 80s, you were making 30,000 pounds of cheese curds a week. Yep. Um, how does that compare to how much cheese you make now? Uh, I make, uh, as far as cheese curds go, it's the only fresh product that we do, about 1,000 pounds a week. <laughs> okay. And on a holiday weekend, we might... 1500 you know and that's all direct sale that's direct market um, all local mostly all through our retail store here and a couple little gas stations within four or five miles of mm -hmm. us. Um, the uh, overall amount of cheese that we're making in a year uh, would be somewhere in that 175 to 200 thousand pound range in a whole year in a whole year which my dad could do that and a month pretty close yeah so but the difference is that you're making a specialty artisan cheese that I'm, I'm guessing since you're still in business you can make a little bit more money on than you could sell in block cheddar yeah it's much more profitable I mean to be completely honest with you our our price point for our products has always been high because it cost me a lot to do things the way that I do it. I made my dad a promise that when, when I went back into this business and, and he, you know, talked his brothers into investing in my idea, that I would never price my cheese on commodity market. Mm. I would always price my cheese on demand. And, and so far, uh, we feel like we've done a good enough job where that demand is still strong for our product and, and, and our cost to produce one person's milk into cheese is higher because I pay a uh, substantial premium to the farmer to be able to have a certain amount of say-so in the feed, a certain amount of say-so in how he treats his animals, and uh, the flexibility to go in and get that milk whenever I need it. So to the farmer, so you're buying, you're buying all your milk from one dairy farmer? Yes. So the, the terroir of that farm really comes through in, in the milk from those animals. Right, okay. So now um, tell me a little bit about the cheddar, the, the, the cheddar that you're making and how, so, so your dad and your grandpa made 60 pound blocks, 40 pound blocks of, of Wisconsin state brand cheddar. And what, what are you doing? Well, we're making uh, 20 pound wheels of artisan style cheddar, meaning it's cellar aged as opposed to vacuum sealed and cold aged. Um, my, for lack of a better term, toolbox, so to speak, of cultures that I can use is much broader. Than Star what so you're talking about starter cultures. Starter cultures. Yep. So starter cultures are, are, at the end of the day, you have two flavor makers in cheese. You've got your starter cultures and you've got your milk. Mm -hmm. And when you blend the two together, with the idea that this particular adjunct culture is going to develop flavor at this period in the aging life of the cheese, you, you tend to have a wider spectrum of flavor in the end product. And then when you throw that into the cellar curing that is 
you know, essentially what our business drove us to. We didn't really ever plan to be a cellar cured uh, cheese producer, but the industry took us there and the success that we had took us there, um, both being hand in hand. So I, I am actually kind of making cheddar the way that it would have been done hundreds and, hmm. you know, maybe even back farther than that. Years ago, uh, we do it the old, the old style, hand cheddared. Um, we use a few different cultures that we feel accentuate the product in the aging process, and it really gives it a candied note. So you get a sweet, nutty, um, earthy, very traditional English farmhouse cheddar out of it. And, and so you got, you got this burst of flavor in a small piece of cheese, and then you throw in the aesthetic texture things, the, 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 the crunchies from the tyrosine and calcium crystals, and it just kind of gives you a, it's not a cheddar for slicing, it's not a cheddar for cooking with, it's a cheddar specifically to eat hmm. on, on the table. That's the best cheddar. I think so, <laughs> yeah. And tell me, about, tell me about the color, it's sort of like this construction fluorescent <laughs> yeah. orange. So, so there's two ways that that color is accentuated. And we use an auto. An auto is a natural uh, food coloring that uh, is derivative uh, from a plant that grows near the equator. And it's extremely potent. Um, traditional cheddar makers, for traditional reasons, would use essentially three ounces of that color per thousand pounds of milk. Um, I use four. Uh, to give it a little brighter mm. texture, you you can you, you can only use so much because it starts to leach out in the way, and it leaches out through the press and other things. So, so there is a limit. Okay, you can do too much, and then you lose it. But uh, four is still a usable thing. So I get a little darker texture, but as that cheese ages down in the in the curing cellar, you lose a certain amount of weight. So as that moisture leaves that wheel of cheese at a controlled pace that color gets darker and darker and darker oh. and it just really makes that wheel of cheese stand out and and wisconsin's known for for their colored cheddars um i think just aesthetically i think it's just a beautiful piece of cheese yeah well there's there's definitely a difference between a 40 pound block of orange cheddar and wheels of your raleigh house select it's i mean yeah. it's it's really striking in well, color. Well, I think, I think another thing that plays into this a little bit, whether it's colored or not, is the fact that I make all of my cheese, not just this particular cheese, everything that I do is whole fat. I don't, I don't standardize, I don't add fat, I don't take fat away. What that herd is producing is what I use. Okay. So seasonal changes are accentuated a little bit, uh, both texturally and aesthetically. Um, flavor-wise, and that's what kind of sets us apart a little bit. Yeah. It's part of our story. So one of the trends in Wisconsin has, in the last decade or so, has been aging cheddar out and then selling it as one year, two year, yep. three year. Um, but your wheels don't have, don't necessarily have an age on them. Tell me about how you decide to sell your wheels. No, we sell our wheels, so we, we taste each batch. And through that, that tasting process, we 
kind of have an idea of where the sweet spot for that cheese is going to be. Now, generally speaking, it's pretty rare to get a multi-year age cellar cured mm. cheese. There is a there is a sweet spot that you can go over and then it just kind of fades away because of the temperature. The temperature is warmer so that cheese ages more accelerated. So you can get the flavor of a year in just a few short months in a cellar that's warmer hmm. uh, and so on and so on. So the goal is not to have a two-year cellar cured cheddar. I mean, it can be done, but everything has to come into mm -hmm. alignment to really get the cheese's sweet spot at that two years. Uh, for us, we tend to find that the sweet spot for our house select cheddar is anywhere from six months to maybe 14 months and everywhere in between. And if we feel that a cheese at, at let's just say seven months is just exceptional, we'll release it at seven months. If we feel that it's gonna be even better at 10 to 12 months, we'll release it there. And actually, uh, I won a world gold medal with this uh, house select cheese with a four month wheel of cheese. No way. No way. Four months. Four months. Exceptional. Had wow. some sulfur notes. Um, just a real nice, you know, at the end of the day, it's a cheddar mm -hmm. and you want cheddar to be the flavor that you're tasting, but all of the, you know, the adjuncts that go along with it and, and the accelerated aging and the, and the, the earthiness of the cellars kind of all kind of come together to to lend a flavor that very rarely at four months you would get and wow. that's that's one of the advantages we have with, with the way that we do things to learn how exactly more american cheesemakers are making what chris raleigh calls candied cheddar we turned to the foremost expert on wisconsin cheese Okay, I'm Mark Johnson. I'm a distinguished scientist here at the Wisconsin Center for Dairy Research on the UW-Madison campus. Um, I'm a troubleshooter. <laughs> I started here as a cheese technologist. I made cheese back in 1980, and I made cheese for probably almost 20 years, and then I hired better cheesemakers. <laughs> You made cheese here on campus yeah, for 20 on, years? Yeah. Oh, I don't think I, I well, didn't know that. For experimental purposes. Oh, sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we did a lot of contract work for companies at the time, and we developed some different uh, cheese types. Like back in 1980s, everything was mozzarella, Swiss, and a lot of brick and Munster, but people wanted to branch out. And um, we started making Havarti and aged Gouda. Um, and some other specialty cheeses that cheeses that we sort of take for granted today, but twenty years ago they were or twenty maybe forty years forty years <laughs> yeah they they yeah. were they were they were exotic yeah we went to um, a, an importer of cheese and said what cheeses are being imported that we don't produce in the U S and he gave us a, a few of those one being Havarti because it was popular at the time and we said well let's let's look at that cheese. And the big problem was getting the right culture 
that the culture companies in the United States didn't have the right cultures, but they had the parent company was in Europe, so they gave us, eventually gave us the right cultures, and it was pretty good cheese then. It turns out that the cultures now being used to create American sweet cheddars, meaning cheddars with lots of crystals and a sweeter toasted pineapple finish, first began when the Center for Dairy Research began making an aged Gouda. <laughs> that was by, by almost a mistake that we made that cheese. Hmm. We, we had um, an opportunity to do a research project for a company from the Netherlands, and they sent over a graduate student. And the idea was to get rid of the bitterness that sometimes comes in Gouda cheese. Hmm. So we had this idea of adding a special culture that we would either freeze or heat shock so that it wouldn't actually grow in the cheese and produce acid, but it would produce flavor, or not flavor, we didn't even know it produced flavor at the time. We knew that it would reduce bitterness, or we thought it would. Okay. Sure enough, um, most goudas are eaten within six months. So um, we judged it up to six months. It didn't develop bitterness. But then I stuck it away in the, in the refrigerator or our coolers downstairs, and I was cleaning them out one day, and it was about a year later. And I said, oh, well, before I throw all this hundreds of pounds of cheese out, I'm gonna taste it. And voila, <laughs> we, had, we had Dutch queso, <laughs> and it was fantastic. And so we tried to get people to make it, um, but there was no interest until I think um, um, Babcock started making it. People started looking at it and saying, whoa, that tastes good. And the culture that we added was um, then taken by a major culture company, mm. and they sell it now, and it appears in a whole lot of different varieties of cheese. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. But you guys sort of paved the way for that one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I eat that cheese a lot. I buy, I, I don't know, I like big flavor, bold cheeses. And, and that would be it. And, and there's yeah. different starter companies have their own strain. So that one was given to us by a research uh, organization in France. And it turned out to be the perfect one. Wow. It just worked great. That's pretty cool. And then we added it to other cheeses. We've added it to provolone, to uh, Swiss cheese, and it kind of mellows out the flavor of these cheeses. And in, in the cheeses where you add a lipase to get the kind of the butyric or the, the intense flavors, mm -hmm it mellowed it out, it made it sweeter. Hmm. And people have been using that culture, now they've switched away from maybe using another form of lactobacillus and using this particular one as a part of the, the flavor development in, in cheeses, in a variety of cheeses. It's gone from Gouda's, now it's gone to cheddar, it's been very popular in cheddar, um, very popular in Alpine-style cheeses too. Hmm. Okay. The, I was gonna say that the one thing that we noticed right away was the development of, of crystals in cheese when we used it. These are really hard little pellets of, of tyrosine, which is an amino acid that's found in, in the proteins in cheese. We believe that this particular bacteria um, um, releases it from the protein, and then it, it's not very soluble, and it accumulates then in the spot where the bacteria are growing, and it forms a little crystal. And it's real hard, mm -hmm. but it's a sign that the cheese is aged properly. Yeah. 
when I, when I see a Parmesan, a Romano, or an aged Gouda that does not have those crystals in, I'm thinking it's not aged properly. But if it has them in, boy, I know it's gonna be robust. That's why some people call them flavor crystals. Mm. But they're flavorless. Right. It's just that they indicate that that, that cheese will be, will be flavorful. Yeah. And they add, they add that little bit of crunchy texture too, yeah, that, you know, that consumers people, seem to like. We work on calcium lactate crystals as a defect. <laughs> and tyrosine crystals are a, a, they're a feature, like not they're, a flaw. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I asked Dr. Johnson to talk a little bit more about how the center's research has affected cheddar in Wisconsin. But first, he told me exactly how cheese starter cultures work. So let's talk about um, cheddar in Wisconsin and sort of the evolution of, of how cheesemakers are starting to make cheddar. Maybe, first of all, do you wanna tell us, tell us a little bit about what a starter culture is and what it does? Okay, a starter culture is a bacteria that is specific uh, for the fermentation of lactose, which is the sugar in milk. It can ferment that very rapidly to create lactic acid. So the lactic acid is what gives cheese its flavor, kind of an acid flavor, mm -hmm. but it also um, makes cheese have a certain body or, or softness to it. The more acid you develop, um, the softer the cheese will become because the acid formed actually dissolves away some calcium that's in the protein. And the calcium in the protein makes the cheese hard and firm. So when we remove the calcium, it gets softer body. Uh, you can actually get a, a cheese that melts faster or that stretches. Mm -hmm. So if I have a defect in a cheese and it doesn't melt and I want it to melt, I know I didn't develop enough acid from my bacteria that, that ferment the, lactic, the lactose to make lactic acid. Okay. So it's a specialized bacteria. Not all bacteria ferment lactose. And this one, the ones that we use in the in cheese industry have been isolated that rapidly ferment the lactose to lactic acid. So when a cheesemaker says that um, to, to create a little bit different flavor in a cheese, they're adding an adjunct culture. What does that okay. mean? So an adjunct culture is something, a bacteria, that we add in addition to the starter to create special flavors in cheese. Mm -hmm. it, it could ferment lactose, but it doesn't do so very rapidly. But what the adjunct bacteria does is break down the proteins, and that's where the flavor comes from in cheese. And so we can isolate certain bacteria that will make a certain flavor. And so we can almost dial in a flavor, if you will, by selecting the right bacteria that we would add, in addition to the starter, the adjunct, to create the unique flavors in a cheese. Mm -hmm. So when I was talking to you earlier about the Dutch quesa and adding a bacteria to get rid of the bitterness that might develop, mm -hmm. that bacteria is an adjunct, got rid of the bitterness, but it also produced a lot of flavor in the cheese. Very sweet, kind of mapley, um, flavor in the cheese. People like that flavor. And so now we're looking at, our companies have been adding it to make cheddar. Mm -hmm. And um, cheddar and like I said, Alpine style cheeses to get a distinct, um, slightly fruity, kind of a cooked pineapple note, but it definitely is sweet. 
And does that does that same adjunct culture help develop crystals? Or is yes. That, okay, because I see crystals also in these cheddars that have yep. the adjunct culture. And the same thing happens in Parm and and in Alpine cheeses and Dutch Quesa, because that culture accumulates tyrosine. It will do the same thing in cheddar or any cheese you put it in. Now, some people might mistake those crystals in cheddar as being calcium lactate because they're very common in, in that cheese. But generally, if you find them on the inside of the cheese, they're gonna be tyrosine. And tyrosine crystals are very firm and very white, whereas calcium lactate crystals would be a little bit softer and a little bit dull color, but still on the whitish side. Okay. Now, adjunct culture is really, if you think about it, that's the way we've been making cheese for almost ever. I'll give you an example. Let's say um, Colby cheese. Colby cheese and Gouda cheese. Mm -hmm. We use the same cultures to make the acid, okay? But we add a special bacteria to the Gouda cheese to make it taste like Gouda. Hmm. So we're kind of looking at doing the same thing by adding any adjunct. Right, it's, it's tweaking it a little bit. Yeah, it's tweaking it. Yeah. If you want to look at it in one way is, how do you make blue cheese? You add a blue mold. Blue mold could be considered an adjunct, but we you generally call those secondary cultures. Mm -hmm. But adjuncts are, are something that was never in the cheese to start with, and we added it to create the new flavors. Yeah. Chris Raleigh uses a term for his cheddar, which I've never heard before, but I think it's it resonates with consumers. He calls it a candied cheddar. Right, because it makes it sweet. <laughs> <laughs> really, we we when we first taste when we first tasted Dutch Kesa, we said caramel right away. So mm -hmm. I can see where Chris is coming from. It definitely makes it sweet. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I just think that's a really, really good term that's probably going to catch on. Because yeah. if you say that to somebody who's buying cheese and they're like, really, it gets their attention right away and they want to try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got a call back 30 years ago when we just started really promoting this idea of adding this sweet adjunct culture. And it was from um, the British Isles. And they said, what have you done to my cheddar? I said, what do you mean? Oh, no. It's not as acid, it's sweeter. <laughs> it's not cheddar anymore. And no, it's a unique cheese and we encourage people to use it. Don't call it cheddar. Yeah. Put, it, put your own name on it, call it something different. Mm -hmm. So Dutch Kesa, it's aged Gouda. Right, so the English don't, don't get mad at us yeah. for screwing yeah. up cheddar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, we're making, a, we're making a totally unique cheese. Cool. Yeah. If you're interested in learning more about candy cheddar, check out my blog, cheeseunderground.com. Our program today was produced with the help of Uriah Carpenter, who, like Chris, super duper enjoys doing a cheese demo in a grocery store. He not, not, no sooner gets his cart, turns the corner, free cheese! <laughs> <laughs> and then starts telling us how he changed the brakes in his Chevy Avalanche pickup and he had a 66 Chevelle that was a drag race car and blah 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 and Reagan's just smiling and it's like okay and then he just turned around and walked away didn't take any cheese with him or anything. Our theme music was composed and performed by Point Five, one of my favorite local bands out of Mineral Point, Wisconsin. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Next week, 
we talk with master cheesemaker Bruce Workman at Edelweiss Creamery in Monticello, Wisconsin, and learn why old-fashioned Big Wheel Swiss has to be made in a copper kettle. Until then, connect with me on Facebook, search Cheese Underground, or follow me on Twitter, at CheeseGeek. Have a great week. Love cheese more. This episode of Cheese Underground Radio is sponsored by Fromagination, Madison's premier cheese shop, located in the heart of America's Dairyland, right on the Capitol Square. Fromagination's team of expert cheesemongers help you select the perfect cheeses and companions for every occasion. Shop online at Fromagination.com, or better yet, visit Fromagination and taste the cheeses that make Wisconsin famous. Fromagination. Love. Cheese. More. So, are we recording? So we're sitting here in the uh, the Raleigh retail office and Uriah is eating an ice cream cone, which he calls a zebra because it's vanilla and chocolate. A twist. Normal people, right, normal people call this a twist. Uriah calls it a zebra. Whatever works. We just call it goodness. <laughs> oh.